The views, opinions, and advice in this podcast are not necessarily those of our employers. Medical topics are discussed largely using best EMS protocols. Discussions here should not replace your own services, policies, and procedures. Hey guys, today we're going to be discussing some issues that Dr. Northheim and Dr. Bertrand have seen as common issues among EMS from the perspective of medical direction. We're going to be going over pneumothorax, spinal mobilization, and sedation slash pain management. All right, so next uh, per we're going to kind of talk about today is uh, tension pneumothorax. And um, we will routinely see patients come in the emergency department who have a needle decompression performed. I think it's important for us to understand why we're doing a needle decompression. It's not for a pneumothorax, it's for a tension pneumothorax. And so although JVD and tracheal deviation are things we're probably not going to see very well in the field, sometimes lung sounds are even really hard to hear, especially in the, in, in, you know, on the highway, maybe a bad wreck. Um, someone's getting extricated, uh, back of an ambulance, obviously very loud with generators and air conditioners going, especially when it's 105 out. I, I think the important part is that this, these patients that are getting darts should be unstable, right? They should not be the two liter nasal cannula setting 98% with a completely normal blood pressure. They should be getting darts if they are you know, hypoxic or having a hard time maintaining sats on a non-rebreather, having a hard time bagging them or getting hypotensive or getting tachycardic. I think, I think that's kind of the moral story. And if, if you perform a dart on someone who doesn't need it, you could essentially, especially with positive pressure, you could essentially give them a pneumothorax. And I think it's important to know that majority of your trauma patients do have a small pneumothorax by the time they come to the emergency department. Most of those, it, you know, unless we're unless they're vented or unless they have positive pressure, we're just kind of watching them, right? Um, and so I think the moral of the story is, you know, please hold off on darting someone unless you're 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 going down the tension pneumo, right? Um, pressure's good if heart rate's good. Um, Sats are easy to maintain on on some you know low flow supplemental oxygen. Probably not take that step, certainly monitor, um, certainly keep that in your dope algorithm when you have an intubated patient because the pneumos can become tension pneumos quickly, but we do see that a lot. We are moving to primary location, uh, fourth and fifth lateral um, uh, instead of anterior. I think the, some of the newer studies are showing a little bit um, higher rates of uh, success. Um, we use a 14 or a 10 gauge, uh, three and a quarter, depending on um, agencies uh, within Best EMS and PCHD. And uh, we actually have moved to finger thoracostomy on our trauma rest. So we've done quite a few here. And I guess the, the beauty of a finger thoracostomy on a trauma rest is you know you're in, you know you're in a good position, um, and it's not going to reocclude. Um, we did have one patient here that we did uh, with a pulse, and that's because we ran out of needle decompression needles and kept needle decompressing the patient, kept reaccumulating very sick patient, did finger thoracostomies, and the patient had a great outcome. Um, but that's I think we see that quite a bit too, where someone gets a dart and maybe doesn't need it, or we kind of ask them, hey, what was their blood pressure, what were their SATs, and they were pretty normal. So yeah. I would just say another example of you know, kind of do no harm, wait to see how the patient declares. And certainly if you're worried about attention, absolutely do the procedure. Yeah, certainly if you are, like you said, seeing signs of hypotension, you don't hear any breath sounds. I think I get a lot of patients who got a dart and the question was, well, I think their breath sounds were a little bit diminished. It's really hard to assess really good breath sounds in the field, right? It's hard to assess in a busy emergency department. So yeah, just look for those signs of tension in with and 
really make sure they're there before you commit somebody to a dart because more than likely, even if they didn't have attention pneumo, you're now committed them to receiving a small chest, a minimum a chest tube, hopefully a small one, but most of the time you're committing them to get that. We had a, we had a fairly bad trauma a few months ago and I was on the fence with darting this person. Um, they seemed fairly stable. They were like maybe mildly hypoxic. We'd had to RSI for a traumatic brain injury type symptoms. And uh, I ended up darting. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I don't think the follow-up ever confirmed whether or not it was, it was justified or not. But the, the sign for me that pushed me over the edge was um, we stopped being able to get a blood pressure. Like that was, it was like, okay. Cause I, I knew there was diminished lung sounds or absent lung sounds on that side. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, that blood pressure didn't come back. I can't feel a radial pulse. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like, it was like, the, and, and whether or not maybe I just couldn't feel a radial pulse at that time, but it was the blood pressure change that I was like, okay, we, I'm yeah. just going to do it. And if I, if I made a mistake, then it is what it is. But the blood pressure change for me was like, I'm, I'm yeah. doing it. Yeah. And, and I guess case, it's a life-saving maneuver. Absolutely. Right. And I think the important thing on a, on anything we're doing laterally, whether it's a finger thoracostomy or we're doing a needle decompression is, you know, if, if you're scared of where you're at level-wise, it really should be anatomic nipple position, um, uh, anterior axillary line. But you can also take, you know, your, your fingers like this and kind of shove it up in the armpit, and that should really give you about the fourth. But if, if you're worried about it, always error towards the head. Um, you know, we see a lot of these patients who obviously are not breathing, their diaphragm is high, and in cadaver lab, I mean, some of these needles that some of the students are doing, once we open the chest, we're like, whoa, that's below the diaphragm, right? And okay. so, so the ultimate point is we, we gotta get into, you know, the thoracic cavity, we have to get in there to relieve the tension. Um, but if you're going to error, right, adrenaline's pumping is always just go up a level and should be safer. Next topic we wanted to discuss was immobilization, specifically cervical spine immobilization. Over the years, everyone knows that we've gotten more relaxed with not committing patients, certainly to backboards and that uncomfortableness for hours on end. And also with regards to C-spine, right? We, have, we give crews a lot more leeway in determining who needs cervical immobilization. But sometimes it seems like we've gone, we've swung the pendulum to where it's getting unsafe. So we've had several patients come in recently that are these little elderly patients that have a history of dementia, that are maybe at a nursing home, they've had a fall, it's a certain, most of the time an unwitnessed fall, they have a laceration to their forehead and they're coming in with no cervical immobilization. And there's no way you can clear that patient clinically because of their altered mental status at a baseline and most of the time, we don't know how altered these patients are at their baseline, so now we could have someone who's even more altered than their normal demented state. So we just want to stress that if you cannot clear them clinically, if they have any altered mental status, any level of intoxication, certainly a large obstructing injury like a femur fracture, any kind of long bone fracture, severe abdominal tenderness, all of those patients should be immobilized with the cervical spine immobilizer prior to transport. Um, the other case I see sometimes is it's a question of whether this, it's a traumatic event, but it's a question of whether there was a medical event that preceded it. And I've had a couple come in where, you know, it was described as, well, people were driving, we saw this person pass out while they were driving and they wrecked their car and they, they're altered because of their initial medical event or possibly trauma event. And I've had a couple come in with no cervical mobilization and they have an altered mental status. And the, you know, the crew says, 
well, it was definitely a medical event. And I'm like, well, they still had a traumatic event. They still, yeah, you know, still hit a guardrail. They still rolled their car. And I actually had one that had a cervical spine injury in a case like that. It, um, doesn't, it doesn't matter why they're altered. They're just not able to communicate. They're not able to actually self-assess, right? Yeah, I think the most common one is, you know, like he said, the demented patient. Like, well, they're always confused. Well, you, you still can't clear them. And, and you know, I, I think um, back in the day, right, when we used to do EMS, uh, no matter – if we collared somebody – we had to board them, right? And the beauty for you guys now is just because you collar them doesn't mean you have to board them, right? And so we would back in the day kind of talk ourselves out of you know collaring someone because then we had to board them. The beauty is, you know, if you have any question at all, just throw the collar. And and how many times do you palpate the neck and everything's fine? And you get to the ER and they're like, oh, he's midline neck pain. I thought great, right? Yeah. I mean, just, just like us. I mean, you could go see a patient. I could go see a patient, and we're probably going to get three different stories, mm -hmm. even though it's only two of us, right? right. And and right. and things are going to change. Um, so I, I think that's an important piece. I also want to stress that if, if you put this on the demented, um, you know, uh, frail person and you deliver them the ER and the collar is to their nose, that's probably not doing much good, right? right. And so we see that a lot. Or if the patient's actively <clears throat> fighting with the collar and moving their neck, that would probably be something good to put in your, your narrative of, hey, patient didn't tolerate collar, was actually fighting the collar. I mean, I'd rather have somebody kind of sitting there not doing a whole lot than trying to fight a collar because that's obviously yeah. making things worse too. So I think there's some, I think there's obviously some documentation. I think there's some common sense, but... We just thought that was a good clinical pearl because we, we happen to see that a lot. So, yeah. Devil's advocate real quick. So you're talking about dementia, and there's, I mean, that's a very progressive disease. That's, there's, a, there's a broad spectrum of dementia patients. Is there a dementia patient that has fallen on the ground that I can see spine clear? Like, is that, does that exist? Like, somebody that maybe is just kind of early on, maybe they just don't know what, where they're at. Like, wh where is, where's the line is, I guess, what I'm asking? Because... If somebody has, a, I've met a lot of people who have a who have a diagnosis of dementia, and they're talking to me like I'm talking to you, and maybe when you delve into it, okay, now they don't know who the president of the United States is, but everything else they are totally aware of. They're totally with it. I would say, play it safe with that patient, and let us have to make that decision. Okay, you know, put that on us. And I kind of consider the same thing with pediatrics, right? We I see a lot of pediatric patients come in that I think should have a C collar that don't. And it, it is pretty rare for a pediatric patient to have a cervical spine injury. They're just so limber and everything, but they can. And so, you know, when I see it and I think it's needed, I tell the crews, hey, just go ahead and play it safe and put that decision on me. I'll be the one who has to make that decision if they really need to stay in the C-collar, if they need a scan or not. So it's better to play it safe, I think, in these patients and have us make that decision than to have someone moved around and transported with an unknown cervical spine injury. What's your favorite? Like, yeah, I, I agree. I would play it safe. And I think the other big thing, especially in Texas, is language barrier, right? I mean, you could have somebody that's alert and oriented that you, you just can't get a good history. You're not really figuring out what exactly happened. You, you're having a hard time communicating with the patient. I mean, I think it's safer on those patients as well, and I'd probably place a collar. We have a lot of agencies doing a really great job with, you know, collaring somebody using a scoop stretcher, mm -hmm. getting them to the cot and taking the scoop stretcher off. I would say make sure you take the scoop stretcher off, right? The point of a scoop stretcher is you scoop the patient, you put them on the cot, and you take it off. And, I, I mean, I had one yeah. the other day that, you know, this, this guy literally had isolated neck pain, but he had a hard time getting up because his leg hurt, got him over to the cot, and kept him on the scoop stretcher, basically one of the, the hard board ones like we have, right, for 20 minutes. Well, by the time we got that off, guess what he had? He had a posterior headache, oh yeah. he had T-spine pain and L-spine pain, right? So now 
he's probably getting scans of four items versus just his neck, right? right, right. And so um, we, we love, you know, scoop, take the scoop off. Um, I think vacuum mattresses are great. I think they're really great for the elderly with hip fractures. Um, make sure if you're using a vacuum mattress that you're putting a sheet down first. And really that vacuum mattress shouldn't leave your cot. Ultimately, we can hold C-spine, we can use a sheet, move the patient over, but it's really hard to get them off the, the, the mattresses once they come to our stretcher, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. it's hard to roll them because they kind of have those little uh, wings that come off once we roll it. And so I would say always keep the mattress on your cot, always prepack it with a sheet, move them over with the sheet. But, you know, a multi-system trauma patient that we're loading and going, I would board and collar 100% of the time. I wouldn't mess around with, with a mattress. I just think yeah. it takes longer. Then you got to blow it up and all straps. I think, you know, load and go situation, we are still fine with board and collar. They're, they're yeah. going to get scanned. They're probably going to get pain meds, right? They're going to get pain scanned for the most part. Yeah. So we're just talking about the one that we're worried about, a neck, right? We can't clear yeah. them. Um, just another clinical pearl. So, and this is kind of not quite off topic, but we just got to repair it all fairly recently. Would you ever consider, you know, that dementia patient who is pulling everything off, it's kind of fighting you, but you're like, man, this person needs a C collar. Would you ever consider five milligrams of Draperidol to calm them down and keep that C collar on? I would say if you have enough clinical suspicion that they need the collar, I think that's a good a good call. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's uh, that's a new drug for me. I, I have yet to give it. I'm excited to give it. So. Uh, this next topic, we're going to talk about resedation. Um, we like to resedate every single patient that we're intubating, and we usually do it pretty much immediately after actually getting the tube, getting it secured. Um, the first of all, I'm going to talk about reparalyzing. So, I've seen a lot of people reparalyze. I've seen different agencies reparalyze. Seems like it's more commonly a small hospital that is reparalyzing because their patients are difficult to deal with and the 10 mics of propofol isn't cutting it. Um, I'm not a fan of re-paralyzing. I never have been. I've only done it on a handful of patients. Um, it, it makes it way more difficult to assess your patient's level of pain. It makes it way more difficult to assess your patient's level of discomfort. If somebody's not paralyzed, then you're able to actually see, okay, they're moving, they're starting to choke on the tube, they're starting to, to open their eyes stuff like that. If, you're, if your patient is paralyzed, you have to watch for heart rate. You have to watch for, you know, that's pretty much it. Like maybe, like, tears. yeah, tears. Yeah. Tears would be the only other real thing that you, could, that you could watch for, right? So we're watching for heart rate. Well, how many of our patients are elderly patients that are on a beta blocker? Yeah. Like you may not always see tachycardia. So you may be thinking like, hey, this 50 of ketamine that I'm pushing every, every 10 minutes is doing a great job. Sometimes people don't respond to ketamine at all. Like, how many times have you given a dose of ketamine that you think would be appropriate, and then there's just they're still awake and like, hey, yeah. what's going on? You know. So right. the last thing we want to do is basically create a living a nightmare for somebody that they're completely aware, and we just don't know it. Uh, the The process of being intubated, the process of of being ventilated, is extremely uncomfortable. Um, and, and so we, we use ketamine, we use Versed, obviously we can use fentanyl in conjunction with that. Uh, we use ketamine drips and I'm a huge fan of a ketamine drip because you're not going to forget to push it again at 10 minutes and you can, you can titrate it really easily. We've, we can go all the way up to three milligrams per kilogram per hour. And I've found, honestly, I found the sweet spot for me, two milligrams per kilogram per hour seems to get pretty much everybody where they need to be. 
No, we have several options. I mean, we have Brissette Drips too, we have Propofol. So really, depending on what our vitals look like, we have lots of options. But I, I mean, uh, I'm not sure how often Skipper long-term paralyzes, but I, I, I would say less than 5% of my cases that I intubate do I end up coming back and doing long-term paralytics. Sometimes in a trauma case or stroke where we have to, you know, really keep them from moving in CT, Maybe we would do it in that case, but we're still actively sedating, resedating, adding some narcotics to it. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel like there's a lot of services that feel like because the long term, if, if you don't use it initially, right? So um, PCHD, we use ROC initially, but if you're an agency that used sucks initially, I feel like there's a lot of agencies that feel like they have to go with ROC because it's in the it's in the bottom drawer of that Craftsman toolbox. I don't I don't think we have to. I think we have to do a better job sedating. I think adding narcotics to our sedation medication is really important but but I agree I mean rarely rarely do I only if we're kind of getting to the point where man we got to get this person to CT we got to yeah. figure out what's going on yeah. but but not replacing sedation Correct. and I think there's some transfers that that we have taken from different facilities where we get there and we say hey what did this patient have and they initially got maybe a tomidator ketamine and they got rock and they haven't had a single other drug for sedation, right? right? And so I think this right. is really important on the hospital side too, especially maybe some of the rural facilities um, to really make sure we're educating on, right? Um, but we get, we've got to resedate. As soon as you get the tube, you know, tied down and make sure it's good in your capnography, you, you got to resedate. And we're actually moving to <clears throat> not even a, a timing on our resedation, right? Because I mean, what's worse than sitting there and say, oh, I got another six minutes before I can resedate this person yeah. and the patient's moving. And that's not what we do in the ER. We don't, yeah. we don't time it every five to 10 minutes, right? We'll get them on a drip. And if they need something, we're going to hit them with a benzo. We're going to hit them with some ketamine or whatever we need to do. And so we're kind of bringing you know some of that ED experience out into the field and, and making it easier on the crews. If they have a tube in place, as long as their blood pressure is appropriate, let's continue with resedate with the medicine that makes sense. And especially with propofol, getting started on the drip, it's kind of hard to find that magic point where they're really sedate. So don't be afraid to go ahead and give them another bolus of propofol. And you know we I do that all the time. I'll get question, you know, hey, they're on propofol but they're still moving around. Well, just rebolts them. As long as their blood pressure is good and they're not hypotensive, then we're not going to hurt them. Yeah. You know, let's just and take maybe, care of them and resedate them. Maybe add some fentanyl in there. Yeah. Um, that's one thing that you know I've seen quite a bit is you know whether it be the hospital or whether it may, may be a, a unstable patient in the field. You know, their blood pressure is not good enough. I can't give them more sedation. Well, nice thing is ketamine typically doesn't cause right. hypotension, but also you need to sedate that person. So like mm -hmm. sometimes just a little fluid resuscitation, maybe a low dose leave a fed drip, something to yeah. get them to the point where you can actually take care of their, their sedation the way it needs to be. I actually heard one of our supervisors here yesterday talk that, you know, you, a busy call, you kind of lose, lose track of time, right? Eight minutes is like that. Yeah. And so what she normally does is she will set her phone or her, her Apple watch for five minutes or eight minutes, whatever mm -hmm. you want to do, right? Great. And so even though, you know, she may have forgotten it. Her alarm's going to go off eight minutes. Okay, you know, probably time to yeah. reconsider some sedation. Depending on what drug you're using, set your clock different. But yeah. then she'll hit reset, and in another eight to ten minutes, right, or five minutes, it will remind her again. So, uh, one other one other thing to talk about with with resedation. Um, just kind of getting back on track before we move on to the last two topics. You can always use a combination of medications, and I think that people kind of get one-track minded sometimes. Hey, I gave ketamine. Hey, it didn't seem like I need, it worked. I'm going to give more this time. Okay, eh, it didn't really seem like it worked. I'm going to give more this time. 
switch gears. Sometimes just it doesn't work. Sometimes you're going to need to give some Versed on top of it. Sometimes a little fentanyl to get their pain under control and then right. lights out. So yeah, narcotics work terrifically. I mean, I think there's some studies that show narcotics first actually work really well. Um, I, I would say whatever medication you carry, really, you know, use the medication that makes the most sense for your bottles, right? So yeah. if you have a patient that's super hypertensive, you're worried they have a head bleed, probably a good idea to go the Versed fentanyl route yeah, for us, right, or propofol route, um, something that you're trying to, you know, get the pressure up. Hopefully, have enough sympathetic surge left that the ketamine will work. But absolutely, I mean, mix things up. Um, yeah. I, I think I think we do that all the time. Would you ever, and again, this is Droperidol is new for me, would you ever consider adding Droperidol in to that, or is it just uh, not in that I, class? Yeah, I, th I think it's a better, um, the, the way we look, I think, at Droperidol, especially in the 5 to 10 doses, it's a really good antipsychotic for someone yeah. that's delirious, um, actively psychotic, but not violent, yeah. right? And so I don't think it's a really great, I wouldn't, I don't think anyone's using it for uh, event sedation, at least we're not. Uh, I don't think the ICU folks are either. Yeah. I don't think I don't think it's strong enough. Well, obviously, yeah. it would be in combination with a stronger drug. Yeah, I don't know how well it's been studied. Uh, I haven't heard anything, but yeah, certainly something to look up. Yeah. I think we have enough meds in our arsenal. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and certainly the other thing I want to say is just even if we're not talking about an intubated sedate patient that we need to keep sedated, but on pain control, I get calls frequently that you know we've given patient three doses of fentanyl and they're still having a lot of pain can we give a fourth dose mm -hmm. and often I tell them well, why don't we try something else yeah. try your other pain modalities that you have to use because obviously it doesn't appear that they're working well with whatever you're trying so let's just try something else first before we give another dose of the same medication right yeah there's so, a lot of good studies now on multimodal pain right so yeah. You know, the most recent study showed if you do, you know, two Motrin slash ibuprofen with two extra strength Tylenol, so 400 milligrams of Motrin with 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol together with a snack every six hours, something in your stomach, you actually have, in, in blinded studies, those patients actually have less pain and less side effects than the narcotic subgroup, right? right. Well, you know, cancer pain's a different deal, probably an open femur fracture, yeah. but I think it's important that, you know, we carry IV Tylenol now, and IV Tylenol may bring your pain score down two or three, right? But you know, adding that to potentially the morphine or the fentanyl and, and trying to create a multimodal pain distribution during transport, I think I think's good. And yeah. I think the patient will have better pain relief um, if you kind of use multi. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Would you ever use Tylenol and fentanyl at the same time? Sure. I mean, yeah. I, I routinely, you know, kidney stones and stuff, I'll give them a gram of Tylenol, I'll hit them with Toradol, and then I'll hit yeah. them with either fentanyl or morphine. Um, I think, and, and the one really important piece is Make sure if you're carrying morphine that you're actually doing a, you know, a, the weight-based dose for morphine is actually 0.1 mg per kg. We routinely give four morphine, four morphine. Well, four morphine for, you know, the 100 kilo person is, is not going to be enough. We routinely give fentanyl at pretty good doses, right? If it's 100 yeah. kilos, we're typically giving 100. You know, some little old person, we're probably giving 50 or 75. I, I feel with morphine, we we automatically stick to four. We, we rarely hear eight, right? And so I would say if you have a bigger person that has good kidney function, go with the higher dose. Um, we used to routinely give, I remember EMS would come in, they'd give two milligrams of Dilaudid over a 15-minute yeah. transport time, and that's 14 <coughs> milligram equivalents of, of morphine, right? But yet... When we go down the morphine route, we're given four, right? So I, I would say that that's some good education as well for, for the crews. Point one, got it. And, and push it slow, right? Push your morphine slow. If you yeah. push it slow, 
it actually shows that it doesn't cause nausea to the patient that doesn't start nauseous, right? You gotta push it slow. Same thing with Reglan if you're carrying that. Reglan has to be pushed slow. And so when they did, you know, slow push versus fast push, there was a considerable difference in the side effect profile for Reglan. And so we'll hear in the ER, you know, oh, she wanna run out of the ER from Reglan. Well, I gave it over 20 seconds. Well, it's too fast. Yeah. So give your Reglan slow, even like your Phenergans. I mean, any of those, Madriperidol, give it slow. Uh, narcotics give it slow, but you could take a patient who has zero nausea and give them morphine slow and, and actually do quite well. Um, and you don't have to waste Zofran and draw it up every time, right? So. Well, guys, I'm going to cut this one off there. We had a few more topics we went over on that day, but I'm going to put it on a different podcast in order to try and keep these closer to 20 minutes. Thank you guys for listening. This has been an episode of the PCHD EMS podcast. Thank you for joining us.